and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletic. I'm coming to you from Portland now, where I've come up here for the Nike Hoop Summit. I was in Houston last night for the Final Four. Got to see Connecticut steamroll Miami, despite the fact that they had a terrible second half. And got to see an incredible buzzer beater from Lamont Butler and the San Diego State Aztecs to beat Florida Atlantic. We're going to talk... All about the Final Four, and then we're going to talk about the NBA play-in tournament race because that thing in the West is a total mess that changes every single night, and I find it to be one of the most fascinating things in all of basketball right now, and I love it so much. Spins, you're here. Adam Spinella. How's it going, buddy? Hey, Sam. Uh, it's great to be here. Again, hoops is is kind of in full swing right now. Like NBA playoffs are starting soon. We're at the tail end of the college basketball season with one game remaining that I'm really excited about. I think it's going to be a, a fun contrast of styles and two teams who tend to will themselves to victory, which is going to be a, a lot of fun to watch. But more than anything, I'm just hoping that you had a great time at the Final Four and are having a better experience in Portland than your last trip out there. <laughs> yeah, uh, by this point last year, I felt sick enough to where I – kind of felt like I had COVID. I do not feel that way, which is good. Good. And from what I gather, all of the COVID strains tend to hit you quicker now. So this is all good. I think we're clear. I think that I missed the boat at last night's game getting COVID. Yeah. Knock on wood. Okay. Uh, yeah, let's talk about the Final Four first. Let's, let's do, do that. Because I think that that'll be the most interesting, you know, live talking point. Shout out to LSU. They just won the Women's Final Four. Uh, over in, I believe that was also in Texas, if I remember correctly, but uh, not 100% sure. I, I do know that I watched the South Carolina-Iowa game. That was absolutely fantastic. Caitlin Clark just going absolutely nuts. And I watched most of this game. I didn't get to see the entire first half because I just got to my hotel in Portland uh, during, I would say, like the middle of the first quarter and had to set some things up for the podcast. But it was a really, really fun game. Obviously, LSU just completely steamrolled Iowa on offense. This comes from someone who has like very little experience with these teams outside of just watching what I can in season. You know, I, I'm not going to sit here and profess to be an expert on women's basketball. Uh, I wish I had more time than I do, unfortunately. But I yeah. love and adore watching it when I do. Angel Reese, like, didn't even really play in the first half in this game, and LSU still got wherever they wanted it was just absolutely uh absolutely crazy to watch the way that they sliced up iowa uh shout out caitlin caitlin clark caitlin yeah, clark yeah. had uh one of the most fun ncaa tournament runs that i can imagine she set the record for most points in an ncaa tournament run uh she broke cheryl swoops's record for that so shout out caitlin clark uh Let's talk about the men, though, because ultimately that is where our expertise is. So do you want to start with Florida Atlantic, San Diego State, or do you want to start with Connecticut and Miami? Let's move chronologically here, Sam, because I think the the San Diego State-Florida Atlantic game really captivated my attention for a full 40 minutes in a way that UConn-Miami didn't quite do. So interesting to hear you say that I, I will push back on that a little bit sure. on my end at least uh, but let's start with San Diego State and Florida Atlantic so just to begin with so I was very very lucky I was sitting courtside last night for this entire thing you know 
please thank you. Shout out David Warlock, everybody at the NCAA. I very much appreciate all of you for that. Uh, the San Diego State Florida Atlantic game was almost every single thing about college basketball that I love or don't like encapsulated <laughs> in a single, you know, 40 minute to two, uh, actually two hour affair. Yeah. So we had a great, super fun first half, free flowing offense. Like you expected San Diego State to grind this thing down to a halt. You expected it. Uh, you expected this older, more experienced team to try and dictate tempo and dictate the pace of the game, and they couldn't do it. Florida Atlantic spaced them out. I thought they really did a good advantage, a good job of taking advantage of some of the uh, schematic disadvantages that San Diego State can sometimes present to you. So San Diego State is more than happy to switch one through four across the perimeter. Uh, Sometimes one through five if Nathan Mensah isn't on the court, but mostly they're going to switch one through four around their big and they're going to have Mensah guard the uh, basket or Jaden D if he's in at center. Because Florida Atlantic plays four guards, it felt like in the first half they were able to kind of dictate those matchups where they wanted. And I thought it was super, super impressive to see them kind of dribble drive, get separation, get penetration, kick it back out, hit Nick Boyd. He hit three threes in the first half hit, you know, uh, all of their variety of shooters out in the perimeter. I thought it was super, super impressive stuff. Uh, What Dusty May and company did, by the way, that was my first time having seen Dusty May coach like in person before. And I was right across from their bench. So I got to like see everything that was happening with them. I was so fucking impressed with him. Yeah. Like so, so impressed just the way that he conducts himself, the way that he is completely calm at all times. He goes back, he gets advice from his assistants. He comes back out. He's ready to go. It was super, super impressive stuff. I thought, um, and they dictated the tempo of the first half. They pushed it up and down. They got where they wanted offensively. San Diego State got just enough offensively to make it work to where they were only down something like 7 to 10, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they figured it out in the second half, obviously. But the start of that game, what were your overall impressions of what you saw? Yeah, totally awesome start from Florida Atlantic and the way that they space the floor. I think San Diego State defensively, they turn up the pressure. They really get into the basketball. And as a result, they tend to live with some kickout threes from time to time. Yep. And what they as a team do a great job of is taking away the corner drift pass, where if you drive baseline, they're going to anticipate that, try to get seals. And they had a couple of them uh, on, on some passes from the Owls that were just going straight out to the corner. But I thought their guards did a good job of getting in the lane and reading where that help defender was going and trying to make the open kick there. The, the other thing that stands out to me is just consistently through this tournament and in that final four game against the Aztecs is how good of a job their guards did on the glass. They are great rebounders on the defensive end of the floor. They attack timely with two hands to try to squeeze basketballs on the offensive glass. Like they're very tough and unrelenting in in some regard. And it wasn't just that they were able to space them out is that they matched the physicality and toughness of a San Diego state team that is really built for that. And as we're watching this first half and Florida Atlantic gets out to a really good start, it was a game of runs, right? Like they were up like six, nothing or eight, nothing. Then the Aztecs stormed back. Then Florida Atlantic went on another run of their own to take a six, seven, eight point lead. 
and it's kind of crescendoed as we got closer to halftime. As we're going into ha- the half, I kept thinking to myself, this is a San Diego State team that might not be built to come back and win a game. That they're great when they can control tempo. Yeah. They're great yeah. because they're so physical on the defensive end and they can kind of clamp you and shut you off as long as they continue to believe and defend. But do they have enough offensive firepower to really crawl their way back in? And can they take away any of those open catch-and-shoot looks that the Owls are really getting? I was looking forward to seeing how the game adjusted in the second half. Yeah, and how I thought it adjusted was it felt like they San Diego State like packed it in almost like yeah. even more, Yeah, which is like almost what you would not think to do in that circumstance when you're getting like sprayed for threes and everything. And, you know, uh, Elijah Martin is killing you, but yeah. like it was awesome. It was super impressive. I thought uh, Lamont Butler really got into those guys at the point of attack. And obviously he got the rewards at the end where he was the person that made the shot that won it for the Aztecs. But I thought that their defensive intensity was terrific. The other thing that they really started to do thing that I was like losing my mind about a little bit, because I was like, wait, why are they doing this? They started to like isolate Jaden Ladee out in space. Yeah. And started to just like, let him go to work against some of their bigs. And it was either a mismatch with Rosado in terms of like size or it was a mismatch with Golden in terms of quickness. Yep. And they just let Ladie go to work. And he was absolutely dreadful in the first half. <laughs> he was awesome in the second half. He was awesome offensively in the second half. He was really, really good. Really awesome. Played super uh, aggressively in that mid-post, mid-range face-up area. Got to his little floater shots. Took a couple of good pull-ups that he made. And generally just got to the basket when he had to. I, I thought that they don't win that game without Jaden Ladee being as good as he was offensively, I thought. Yeah, and it helped get Golden in foul trouble, which I think changed the game for the Owls in some regard, which we can obviously talk about the whistle, particularly down the stretch run of that game and how that might have that, played I will a say, factor. That is the other thing that changed for San Diego State. Yeah. The officials went from not calling a lot of stuff yeah. to just completely changing course and calling everything. Yeah, And that is bad. Let's just be clear about that. It was an inconsistent whistle. I thought it was a bad whistle. And I thought it was, frankly, something that, in terms of the bad calls that occurred, probably favored Florida Atlantic a little bit more. But the general overall tenor of the whole thing becoming more physical. Yes favored San Diego State. It, it, it was physical. It slowed down the game. And then we how many offensive rebounds off of free throws did we see in the final four or five minutes from the Aztecs that allowed them to Correct. keep possession of the game, get some of those easier looks, even when they weren't converting from the line. When it turned into a physical contest, even though the whistle was a little bit tighter because the Aztecs could get second chance opportunities and live at the line, that's really how they bridged that gap over that final five minutes. A hundred percent. I think that you nailed that. Uh, The fact that it slowed down with free throws and just a lot of stoppages didn't allow Florida Atlantic to be able to run and to be able to go in the way that they wanted to go. 
that really, I think, helped San Diego State. Matt Bradley was really good in this game offensively. Mm-hmm. He just was very confident. He was super calm out there the whole time. Yeah. You could see it. The other guy that was super calm out there was Elijah Martin, and we should talk about him a little bit more. Yeah. Like, he was just, like, taking in the entire scene, the whole game. Yeah. Like, you could see it. Like, he was just like, this is what I've been waiting for my whole life. You could see it on his face. Like, they had that uh, ATO probably with like two minutes left, two and a half minutes left in the game where he goes and makes that like up and under layup uh, on the other side of the basket. So he came toward the side where I was sitting and I was sitting in front of the Florida Atlantic, like fan base, like their fan section. And the way that he looked up at the stands and just like looked around and was like, he he looked and just was like, this is really fucking cool. You could see it. <laughs> like, but it wasn't an overwhelmed by the moment thing. Yeah. It was, this is just really cool. I'm going to embrace this. I'm going to uh, remember this moment. Yeah. And I'm also going to go score a bucket in an incredibly important moment to give my team the lead. Uh, and he did, right? So it was... It was super, super impressive stuff. Super impressed by Elijah Martin in that game. Ultimately, Lamont Butler is the thing that ended it. And that was that was an awesome shot. The the vibe in that in the San Diego State section, I don't know if you saw it live. <laughs> they were just chucking beers I'm all sure. over the place. Oh after. my god, yeah. It ruled. It was fantastic to see how pumped those fans were. And shout out Lamont Butler, man. Uh, I think he is like kind of a sneaky NBA prospect, not because of the offense, because of the defense. He is one of the absolute best on ball defenders in all of college basketball. Six foot two, six foot three guard who really gets into you at the point of attack. But my goodness, I mean, that shot was just everything that you want in a college basketball game. Every single thing. A textbook release, textbook shot, everything about how he got into his rhythm gather, the the one step into the pull-up, the follow-through, spin on the ball. Like It is the perfect moment. And I forget where I heard this. I, it might have been in, in conversation with you. Like The magic of basketball, right? The yeah. magic of basketball is that one moment when the ball is in the air and everyone in the arena is waiting to see if the shot goes in. And based on the moment and the buildup over the 39 minutes and – 58 seconds leading into that moment that crescendos up to see how important, how large of a roar there's going to be. And we saw the magic of basketball on full display last night. It was awesome. Yeah. I literally just like walked back into the media section and saw a good friend of the program, Mark Titus. And I just like looked at Titus. I was like, you know, it's good. Mark basketball, (laughs) like basketball is good. This is why basketball is great. This is why we love this sport. This is why, like, even though we got the terrible foul calls, and I'm sure Florida Atlantic fans and San Diego State fans are frustrated that the foul calls happened and that the officiating was terrible, even though we got, like, so much weird shit, even though we have to live with so much strange shit that happens in college basketball games, uh, where we're, frankly, watching 18 to 24-year-olds, like, try and figure out how to play high level professional basketball on the fly. Right. It's just the coolest fucking thing in the world. Like this is why I will never quit college basketball. Like I I have gone more down the road of like doing NBA stuff. We're going to talk about the NBA later in the show. I continue to end up, you know, 
more on that side of the spectrum, but I'll just never quit college basketball because yeah. of shit like that. It's the yeah. absolute best thing in the world when something yeah. like that happens. There's a different level of passion. There's a different level of relatability because these guys are kids. They're still, like you said, learning and figuring things out on the fly. Uh, the, you know, look, we can all have our gripes with whether it's officiating, whether it's the fact the final three minutes of that game took 25 minutes and there were 8,000 timeouts called before, you know, one field goal was taken, but so much fun. I mean, all of it leading up yeah. to that one moment, I'd do it again and again and again, every single time. Hats off to Florida Atlantic for an unbelievable tournament run in season. They are legitimate. They have some legitimate dudes. I fully expect them to be back on the national picture next year. But this is a this is a great opportunity to celebrate San Diego State too because they earned this victory by crawling back into it, and they've got a bunch of really tough dudes. Yeah, so they're going to play Connecticut, who won seventy two to fifty nine, and uh, this game was never close. Like, I, I know that Miami made like a bit of a run there. This game was never close. Like, Connecticut is so good. I was just sitting there smiling, watching Connecticut play. Like they are tough as hell defensively. They run incredibly intricate, high level offensive basketball where look part of why, and we'll talk about this part of why I think Connecticut's going to, it's going to go pretty well for Connecticut. (laughs) I think on Monday is that they run this like ball movement style of offense and they run this like incredible fun, you know, intricate off ball movement and all sorts of crazy high level screening actions. Like I'm not saying that San Diego state, like they have good off ball defenders, but what they excel at is like cutting off driving lanes and cutting off angles and like being physical and being tougher than you. Maybe they can do that in the driving lanes. Maybe they can do that like off the ball. I I, I just think that stuff doesn't matter as much against Connecticut because on top of it, Connecticut is bigger and tougher than you on defense. Yes. Because of Sunogo and Klingon. And it it feels silly to start talking within this conversation about Klingon, Donovan Klingon, Connecticut's seven foot two plus. I asked him how tall he was after the game. He was like, honestly, I might. He, he in not so many words he kind of intimated he might be a little bit taller than that yeah. um he was the guy that just like stood out he had four points and six rebounds he was the guy that stood out for me most in that game well you and i were texting back and forth about it during the game like the only way to stop him was to play adama sonogo and that's not that's not a winning proposition for the Hurricanes or anybody else, but it's just he's such a force out there because he's huge, he's mobile, he's got soft hands and great touch. He was just snagging one-handed rebounds that he was tipping to himself. Like, what do you do yep. with a guy like that, particularly when you're an undersized team like Miami? Oh, you can't do anything with Nothing. it. Like, oh, Norchad Omir tried, and, you know, God love him. That dude's physical, he's tough. Like, I love he, him. He's... I love Norchad. He had no shot. He had no shot. No shot with Klingon. That, that dude is enormous. He moves like I I thought he moved well watching him on tape and like seeing him, you know, on TV and everything. It's kind of hard to overemphasize how well he moves like in short areas. Like it, it's it's pretty sick. I said I tweeted this out last night. It got like a bunch of retweets and likes from Connecticut fans being like, yes, you're right, but shut up. Uh <laughs> There's no way that he doesn't go in the first round if he declares. 
he is so good in drop coverage. Like yep. he is like terrifyingly good for a freshman in drop coverage right now. Yeah. yeah. He is seven foot two. He moves well. The shot looks projectable. Like I know he doesn't take anything outside of like three feet, but when you watch him shoot free throws and you watch him in practice, you watch him take shots. It looks like there might be something there. And like, you're talking about like 20 to 30 in this draft. You absolutely take a swing on this guy. If he declares, I don't know if he's going to declare like he seems very happy at Connecticut and God love him. Like if he doesn't declare, he could be the like lone big man that goes in the top 10 in 2024 with how big of a mess that draft is like there are pros and cons to him leaving Connecticut now or leaving in a year's time. I don't know what he's going to do, but I'm just saying that guy's going in the top 30. If he declares this year, I have, I have very few doubts about that. Yeah. I mean, uh, other than Derek lively, it's hard for me to envision a, a big man in this class, a true center type who has a more projectable upside and the skills that we've seen that can translate to the NBA. And to me, it comes yep. down to the footwork. Like, yes, he's, he's huge and he eats space, but if he has to move his feet for more than one step or two steps, he's pretty graceful with it. He can do it without fouling with keeping his arms really big. Um, you know, I remember watching him on the AAU circuit. He played a bunch of hoop group events that I used to always go to and, and coach at. And his footwork on the block was always so pristine, even from a young age, that you would look at something like that and say, can he figure out how to move his feet and just master angles in space on the defensive end of the floor? Because if he can do that, he's going to be unstoppable on both ends. And no, in no way did I expect him to do that as a freshman. It's hard to talk about Klingon objectively because we fall in love with all of the small traits that he's shown us, yet he still plays a minimal role on this Connecticut team as a backup to Sonogo because he's also been so dominant. And by the way, Sonogo was awesome against Miami. So like, good. Top to bottom, did so many things. He shot the ball well. He attacked closeouts and finished at the rim, protected the basket. Uh, shout out, like you said, to, to Hurley for the movement that they have on offense and the way that that allowed Sonogo to seal guys up the line for high lows and their guards just threw the ball directly over the top because none of the Hurricanes could you know, be in position from the backside with all the movement going on. Like Everything about how Connecticut utilizes their bigs is pristine, and that allows Klingon to show all of his strengths without revealing any potential deficiencies. But my God, we're how deep into the season now? And we've seen him do this consistently every single game. Like there may not be many deficiencies there. Yeah. And I mean, like the short roll game from Sonogo has gotten way better yeah. throughout the course of the season. Uh, Klingon has gotten way better defensively and in terms of just like learning where he needs to be and like how to best utilize his frame throughout the course of the season. Uh, they're super impressive. The other thing I will say, like being there and like seeing him up close Jordan Hawkins was nowhere near 100% in this game like I I know that Dan Hurley is like saying that publicly and everything I just want to make it clear like that's not bullshit he is he was like not moving nearly as much as he does throughout games last night like typically he is the energizer bunny that's like running off of screens like back and forth across the offensive zone trying to find uh any sort of daylight for an open catch and shoot three and he just didn't have it like he 
just absolutely did not have it uh, because he had a stomach bug the night before. Uh, and look, it, it's the fact that they auto benched Andre Jackson for 16 minutes in the first half and didn't have Jordan Hawkins really like for that game. Like he had 14 points, but he was not a hundred percent in that game. Just straight up. I can tell you that the fact that they beat Miami by 13, given that is ridiculous on top of it. This is now a team that you are San Diego state. You have to prep for in 48 hours, all of the crazy shit they do on offense that is an impossible prep in 48 hours. Like all of this is why I think that this is, I I feel good about Connecticut is what I would say. Yeah. I struggle seeing how San Diego state is going to score to be honest with you. That's, that's the thing for me. That side of the floor is the one that I think more heavily favors Connecticut because while San Diego state, like it's hard to game plan schematically, they at least have, really good defenders all the way through their lineup, individually speaking. But, but you know what the problem is? So does Connecticut. So does Connecticut. And Connecticut is, like, Connecticut Huge. is big. Huge. Like, they are 6'5 across the board. Like, Tristan Newton is legit 6'5. Jordan Hawkins is legit 6'5. Uh, you know, Alex Caravan is 6'8. Andre Jackson is 6'5", 6'6". Something like that. Like, then you have... Sonogo, Klingon, both of those guys are enormous. And Sonogo plays bigger than six foot nine. And then you have, you know, Naheem Aline, who's six four, but is like, he was huge yeah. and like physical. Yeah. And, and like Joey Calcaterra, I guess, is their smallest guy. He's like six three, but he's really smart defensively. Yes. Like they're just tough. They're, they're a tough team. They're super intricate and tough to deal with offensively. They're physical defensively they have the imposing rim protection like it, it is obscene how good they are yeah and it, it you can't bet against them sam like as, as much as i want to give san diego state the fighting chance and, and believe in what they've done i love dutcher as a coach and just how much belief they have in themselves you can't bet against Connecticut, not after what we've seen the last five games, not with the fact that they haven't lost a non-Biggies game all season long. And I think they've won each game by 10 or 12 points at least outside of conference. Like yeah. They're dominant right now. They are dominant. They're deep. They shoot it. They defend. They rebound. I don't know how to beat them. Yeah, I think they're a really tough beat. I mean, I am just looking through their non-con. I mean, yeah, they beat Oklahoma State by 10. I think that's the closest in their non-con. Like, yeah, they're they're a ridiculous team, man. They're they're really good. Yeah. Uh, honestly, like, they're not going to go down as one of the best teams ever. You can't when you're a four yeah. seed, right? But like, at their peak, like at the beginning of the year and right now, I have not seen many better college basketball teams. Like, th- this is better than like you know last year's champion, right? Like, this is better than uh, just kind of everyone. Across, like I'll do respect to that Kansas team, right? Like that Kansas team was really good last year. Like they had a better record than this Connecticut team, but like my my goodness, they're so much bigger, they're so much longer, they're so much more athletic than that Kansas team. Uh, 
and they like the shit they run like rivals bill self and there are very few teams i feel like that you can say rival yeah. bill self yeah and then like you, you go back to 2021 like we love that baylor team that baylor team yeah. was yeah. awesome but they're small like yeah. Butler, Mitchell, Macy Oteague, Adam Flagler. Like, those are four of their biggest players. Like, Mark Vital was playing, like, real minutes. They had nobody over six, like, six, nine. Like, Flo Thamba is probably, like, six, nine, right? Like, it's just hard. Like, this is a really, really good team. Like, at their peak, this is a very, very good team. And, man, I I don't – I'm with you. I don't know how you stop them. I don't. I have no idea. We talked about it back in December, a little bit of a hiccup there in the middle of the season with the Big East, but they figured themselves out and they are one game away from being national champions. Okay, we're going to take a quick little break here and then we're going to jump in to the play in race picture across the NBA, uh, which, by the way, as we've been talking, uh, (laughs) yeah, Minnesota made some mistakes. (laughs) Boy. We're talking about players securing the bag when they get drafted in June. I need to tell you about securing your internet connection with NordVPN. What is a VPN? It's a virtual private network. A VPN reroutes your traffic through a remote server, encrypting it in the process. This is going to hide your location from your ISP, hackers, and from other people looking to get your data. Everybody knows that I watch as many movies as I can. I think I've probably watched like 40 or 50 this year already. Some movies are blocked in Australia. It's really hard for me to watch them. Uh, For instance, uh, anybody who's tried to get their hands on Godzilla minus one recently knows that it's basically only available in Japan and you need a VPN if you want to go to like Amazon prime or something to be able to watch it. So When I'm blocked from watching a movie in Australia, I just queue up my VPN. I change my location and it unlocks a category of movies from all of my favorite streaming services. As somebody who's always on the go, connecting to public Wi-Fi is a necessity, but it's also just a goldmine for hackers. That's where Nord comes in, creating a secure tunnel for my data to travel through away from prying guys. There are other benefits to Nord as well. Your browsing history is yours and yours alone. Your virtual location is masked from those who seek to track your every move. It's like having a force field around your online identity. NordVPN also goes the extra mile with threat protection. Malware, trackers, dodgy ads, they're all going to get blocked. It's like having a shot blocking big around your devices 24-7. Game Theory is offering an exclusive deal for NordVPN. You're going to get four extra months and up to 75% off subscriptions, just head to nordvpn.com slash game theory, G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y, to claim your account. Plus, with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Go to nordvpn.com slash game theory to claim your account, nordvpn.com slash game theory. Guys, I can't emphasize enough uh, how much I use Nord every day of my life. Uh, Nord is a fantastic sponsor for us. So go support Nord. And it's a great product. So nordvpn.com slash game theory.
Okay, before we get to this like disaster in Minnesota that just occurred, uh, by the way, shout out Minnesota, the, the Timberwolves. Talked about them incredibly kindly yeah. with Mark Schindler on the last show. Like, we're super excited to talk about how fun and how enjoyable the Timberwolves have been recently. They ripped off four wins in a row, you know, three of them against the Knicks, Warriors, and Kings. They proceed to lose three straight because, of course, they did. Right. Uh, we're we're going to get to Minnesota in a minute, though. I do want to start with the East because the East is just going to be a little bit quicker to get through, right? And by a little bit quicker, I mean much quicker to get through. So the only couple of things here that we're waiting to find out in the East, the big one is can Miami catch Brooklyn? So Brooklyn has obviously not been nearly as good without Kevin Durant. They have also won four of five. That is basically i think put them in the driver's seat to maintain that six seed and maintain that playoff spot they are currently a game and a half ahead of miami uh at 42 and 35 miami is 41 and 37 it's going to be really interesting speaking of that minnesota team that we seemingly can't escape as we talk (laughs) through this brooklyn plays coming down the stretch minnesota detroit orlando philadelphia like that should be two wins and realistically all they need is against Detroit and Orlando at this point to be able to get it done. If they win those two games, they'll be sitting at 45 wins. I believe, uh, but by, by the way, I'm sorry, they're 43 and 35. Now that game against Utah, uh, just ended as yep. well. They just won by one in you or against Utah. So two um, game, two game lead on Miami. Then they have a two game lead on Miami. All they have to do to get the six seed now is beat Detroit and Orlando. If you do that, you get it. And then you have free rolls against Minnesota, who God knows what they're going to look like. And then Philadelphia at home April 9th in the last game of the year. Which so, might be might be resting territory for the Sixers, depending on if they lock up some seeds. I, I doubt Embiid would want to do that since he's MVP chasing, but you never know what rotations look like for teams that are locked into that spot in the final game of the season. Well, yeah, and Philly is honestly like kind of locked into the three, so they're yeah. two and a half games behind Boston, two and a half or three and a half games ahead of Cleveland. So they are kind of locked in. It is possible that uh, the Sixers could rest in that game for sure. Uh but I think Brooklyn is in a pretty good spot here. And by the way, just like this run Mikhail Bridges has been on has been just absolutely incredible. So, you know, you just kind of look through you know, the point totals here, for instance, in the middle of this run. So Thursday, March 23rd against Cleveland, 32 points. March 25th against Miami, 27 points. The loss to Orlando, 44 points. They beat Houston. He has 27 points. They beat Atlanta. He has 42. They beat Utah today. He has 30. Mikel Bridges is here. He is a star, and we need to be realistic about it at this point. He is someone that it will be very interesting to see, in all likelihood, Philadelphia have to play in the opening round. By the way, you do wonder if Philadelphia could potentially look to sit some people just to not give anything away in the last game. Right. Right. So, so don't give them an extra game of scouting. And I think the other part of that, too, which, you know, scheduling wise, we'll see how it turns out. If, if I'm Philly, I'd rather play Brooklyn than Miami. Just straight up. I, I think 
Eric Spolstra is a, a harder coach to go against in a best of seven series. I think Bam Adebayo yeah. is a tougher matchup for Joel Embiid than anything that Brooklyn would be able it's to a great throw point. at him. So if it is close by the end of the season and I'm Doc Rivers, I'm saying, wow, we can help Brooklyn be our opponent and rest our guys for a night. Yeah, we're taking this night off. It's a great point. It's a really good point. Uh, the last games here, by the way, for Miami, just to keep it in context as well, Detroit at Philadelphia, Washington, versus Orlando. So they could realistically win all of those games, probably favored in three of those four games at the very least. They will be able to keep pressure on Brooklyn. Like if Brooklyn slips, Miami will be there. So it will be very interesting to watch all of that play out. Uh, the 8, 9, 10 range is all very close as well. Toronto, Atlanta, and Chicago, that eight seed is obviously incredibly important because it yeah. gives you the double chance uh, to be able to get uh, a loss and knocked out um, of this whole race. Or if you lose in the first game, you don't get knocked out of right. the whole race. Uh, they have Charlotte on Tuesday after having already beaten Charlotte today uh, by 20 points. And then they have a back-to-back against Boston on the road and then Milwaukee. So... Toronto, if Milwaukee and Boston, if one of those two teams can kind of pull away in the one seed chase here late, currently Milwaukee is a game and a half up, or I believe, yeah, game and a half up on Boston. That could become interesting, but I would imagine that Toronto is not in a favorable schedule position. Uh, If you look at Atlanta coming down the stretch, Atlanta has Dallas right now. Then they have Chicago, Washington, Philadelphia, Boston. Philadelphia is what they decide to do, having basically locked in the three seed already. Going to be very critical for all of these races uh, coming down the stretch here. Chicago, Atlanta, Milwaukee, Dallas, Detroit coming down the stretch. Honestly, Chicago could win three of those four games if things really broke right, right? So they also were coming off of a really nice 20-point win against Memphis today. I don't know how this thing looks, man. Like, this is going to be wild. Yeah, and and Chicago and Toronto playing pretty good basketball right now, too. Uh, I think each of yep. them have won seven of their last ten, eight of their last 11, something like that. Uh, the, the Bulls have been much more inspired and collective as a unit defensively, and that has propelled them to some success here. And then Toronto starting to figure some things out just rotationally. I think Jakob Pertl's fit has been a lot better there for the Raptors over the last couple of weeks uh, after maybe a growing pain or two coming from the deadline. So, you know, Atlanta, the one team in this mix that's not trending upward, I think it's really important for them to maybe steal a game or two from one of the better teams because they might need that margin for error the rest of the way. You know what the problem is? They're not like trending upward or downward. Like they've just, alternated yeah. wins and losses like yeah. over every game, it feels like for their last like 25 games or whatever, right? Like, they lose to the Nets, they beat the Cavs, they lose to the Grizzlies, they beat the Pacers, they lose to the Timberwolves, they beat the Pistons, they lose to the Spurs, they beat the Warriors. Like, it's, it's a weird team. The, the Hawks are a very strange team. And, and trying to figure out anything with them, you know, new coach, obviously, with Quinn Snyder, just like taking over on the fly. Like, trying to determine anything with them seems like a fool's errand. Yeah. Uh do you have a prediction for how the six through 10 race ends in the East? Yeah. I mean, I think Brooklyn probably hangs on the six just scheduling wise and Miami in the seven. Uh, I'd go 
maybe Toronto eight, Chicago nine, Atlanta 10. I think that's where I fall on it as well. I think I would go Brooklyn, Miami, Toronto, Chicago, Atlanta is how I think this thing ends. Well, and let me ask you this, Sam, if you are one of Milwaukee or Boston, is there a particular team or matchup in this play in group that you're hoping not to face or that you think would give you more trouble than somebody else? I, I mean, look, I think Miami is like a level above all of these teams. So like, I, I would not want to play Miami for sure. Uh, look, I know that like they have a negative point differential and everything this year. I know that, you know, Toronto has looked really, really good since the Jakob Pertle acquisition. Yeah. So I think there's absolutely a case to say that you want to avoid Toronto as well. But the problem is that like two teams have to make it and you have to play two of these teams. Right. So look, I think that my, I think that at the end of the day, Milwaukee and Boston beat both of these teams and it gets done. Yeah. I think I'm in the same boat there. Uh, You know, obviously the experience from uh, Eric Spolstra and and what he's been able to do in seven game series just gives me a little bit of pause. I I think Toronto is probably the most talented connected group right now, but Miami has a coach that ends up making a big difference in a best of seven series. Agree. Okay. Let's go to the West. Oh boy. Deep breath for everyone. So as we've been recording, let's start here. The Timberwolves are in the midst of a now three game win streak because They just dropped a home game to the Portland Trailblazers who started Skylar Mays, Shaden Sharp, Matisse Thibel, Trendon Watford, and Drew Eubanks. They played John Butler, 18 minutes, Jabari Walker, 19 minutes, Kevin Knox, 29 minutes, Shaq Harrison, 18 minutes, and Jonathan Williams, 13 minutes. Uh, Look, all due respect to those guys, those guys all fight. And I think that that's why Portland has chosen to continue to like develop those players, particularly inside them. It's a loss you can't have if you're Minnesota. Uh, Carl Towns went one for three from the field in 25 minutes and had five fouls. Mike Conley uh, did not play particularly well in this game. It's... Something we talked about on the last show with Mark is that I hoped that because some of the roles were a bit more defined now within Minnesota, that implementing Carl Towns back in might be a little bit easier. I think I was wrong about that. And I think that it actually has not been any easier. I think it's been quite difficult at this point and look i mean they're gonna have to find a way out of this mess to me uh, at some point but you know maybe that'll be mid-season next year if it continues not to work i would imagine they're gonna keep letting this thing roll a little bit but this is one you couldn't lose if you're minnesota and it really does like put them drastically behind the eight ball they fell uh I i believe from eighth to ninth and they are only three games left this season, whereas some of these teams currently have four games left. Minnesota, over the course of their last three games, uh, they're going to have to play, I believe, like a fairly yeah. uh, e- easy one, right? Like it's here, let's see. 
Brooklyn, San Antonio, New Orleans. Yep. So, you know, you can win in Brooklyn with the way the Nets have looked, although they're certainly playing better right now, having won four of five. You should win in San Antonio, who probably won't try to win that game. And you're at home against New Orleans, which might come and be the final thing that determines this playoff picture next Sunday, right? So I don't know, man. Like, you could convince me that anything happens with this Minnesota team at this point, and I wouldn't really know where to go with it. Yeah, so quickly, very quickly here, I just want to pay my respects to that fighting group for the Portland Trailblazers because how many times have we seen it over the last week or two, whether it's Portland there, I think – you know, Charlotte got two big wins over a discombobulated Mavericks team last weekend. Like these are guys who are playing for their lives and their NBA contracts. And we expect them to just kind of roll over because the usual stars aren't in the lineup. We know that it would be advantageous for the franchise if they lost more games and had a better draft position. These guys don't necessarily care about that. They want minutes. They want long-term roles. They want to prove their worth on an NBA stage. So if you are a team like Minnesota who's fighting for your playoff lives and just trying to get as good of a seed and an opportunity to to make it in the playoffs as you can, you have to know that going into a game like this. You have to know that everybody on the opposing team, regardless of it's the guys that you would size up and say we're more talented than them, or if it's just a really a, a good group of veterans who are out of the playoff picture, you can't size anybody up you have to be able to, to drive that nail into them. And unfortunately, Minnesota could not do that. Yeah, and coming into this game as well, Shaden Sharp, uh, over his previous Great. six, had averaged Great. 24 points, six rebounds, three and a half assists, shooting 46% from the field, 44% from three on eight three-point attempts per game, and 80% from the foul line. Uh, obviously, today, Shaden Sharp had a terrific game, dropping 27 points uh, in this one, going nine of 19 from the field. So, uh, look, that's about the best place that you can get an offense first prospect like Shaden Sharp to land developmentally because that organization over its years has done a great job of figuring it out with these guys. And with Damian Lillard being there, I think that they do a really good job of being able to imbue and like embody the work ethic that Lillard has. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah. And the intensity that he brings to the table. So yeah, look, he's going to be a, He's going to be really good. I, I think he's going to be really, really good. And maybe we'll deep dive into him a little bit at the end of the season when we do like a rookie recap. But sure. uh, yeah. this is not about Shaden Sharp. This is yeah. about the NBA playing picture. Well, and one last thing on Minnesota there, if we're trying to hypothesize about different things they can try to make them more viable in the postseason or at least to get the pieces to better mesh, I wonder if outside of the opening few minutes and closing few minutes of a game, if they go more with a Conley and Gobert pairing and sit Edwards and Towns and then play Edwards and Towns and sit Conley and Gobert for stretches, that keeping kind of the, the, uh, the Utah guys and then keeping the Minnesota guys together, might, I don't know if it's chemistry. I don't know if it's just the fact that Conley's a better lob passer out of the pick and roll than anybody else that they have. To me, that might be something they try. There's no way they'll sit Edwards. I, I can actually see a world where they decide to sit Towns. Like that, that's not impossible to me, given that he's still just like getting back. And I think you can just like make the case: look, we're playing better without you right now. Like it's a difficult implementation. We kind of just need to give the guys like the best chance to win. Um, 
I don't really see that yeah. happening either necessarily, but I'm just saying, I think that's more of a thing. Edwards, there's no way. They're yeah. No, and I shouldn't say sit yeah. Edwards. I should say stagger his minutes a little bit better so that it's him and towns on the floor together. And you yeah. keep that pairing. Cause I think they really enjoy and have developed the chemistry with each other. Uh, you, you yeah. can obviously play Conley Edwards and Gobert together. They've done that already this year, but I think that keeping yeah. being more intentional about, okay, we're going to give time to let the Conley Gobert pick and roll rock. Then we're going to go in and we're going to play some ant iso ball, ant pick and pop stuff with Towns and let Towns eat a little bit more while Gobert's on the bench. Those are the minutes that we probably need to sit Conley. That's the best hypothesis I have. So let's dive into the play play in picture here as a whole. So Denver, Memphis, and the Kings have all clinched playoff spots. The Suns are currently two and a half games out of the playing picture. Now they play the thunder tonight. They play San Antonio on Tuesday. If they win both of those games, they will just straight up be in the playoffs. Now, if they don't win both of those games, they have Denver, the Lakers and the Clippers coming down the stretch, which are three games that will be highly competitive, very difficult games. Uh, I would assume Denver will be because I don't think Denver at that point will have clinched the number one seed, although it will be pretty close, I think, to them being able to clinch the number one seed. Uh, Phoenix, I think they're probably just out of this picture to some extent, but they are at least on the upper fringes and just about to graduate, let's say, into... uh, into okay. the playoff picture versus the play-in picture. Yep. And they just beat Denver over the weekend, right? In the game that Jokic sat. Is that right? Uh, I believe that that sounds right to me. Yeah. Yeah, they did. Yeah. I watched the Minnesota game. I did not watch the Denver game. So Yeah. I mean, look, we, we all know that Phoenix has a different level of firepower in a way that they can probably tap into and turn on that some of these other teams in the Western Conference playoff race don't. The fact that they're starting with a couple game advantage here with four or five to play puts them in the driver's seat to be that four seed, no doubt. Yep, I think that's right. Okay, now let's get into the real meat of this thing. The Warriors are 41 and 37. The Clippers are 41 and 38. They currently occupy the five and six spots. The Pelicans are 40 and 38. They're a half game behind the Clippers, a full game behind the Warriors. The Lakers are currently 39 and 38. They are currently a full game behind the Clippers and a game and a half behind the Warriors. The Timberwolves are 39 and 40 after today's calamity. They are, it looks like two games back of the Clippers, but this is where we start getting into like the play in things like they are a game behind the Lakers and a game and a half behind the Pelicans. They also are at 79 games played, whereas the Lakers are at 77 games played. So they, the Lakers basically have two games in hand to be able to like really potentially put some distance between themselves and the Timberwolves. Uh, And then the thunder are 38 and 40. They are a half game behind the Timberwolves. They're playing Phoenix. I believe that game starts in like 15 minutes. Uh, behind them is Dallas. Dallas is 37 and 41. Dallas plays Atlanta right now in the Luca Trey bowl that everyone yep. 
uh, is always looking forward to seeing. Atlanta is currently up five. They are at 48 points in 16 minutes of game time uh, against Dallas, which, you know, sounds about right for this Dallas team, right? Sounds right. That does sound accurate. So, you know, sometimes that's going to happen. That's the reason that we well, let's start with Dallas here. Okay, let's do it. We should mention Utah is two games out of this picture as well. Uh, they are at 36 and 42. They could realistically catch the thunder. Like it, it's not impossible. They do have Lakers twice, Oklahoma city, Denver. I think it's going to be tough for them to catch Oklahoma city. Even if they win that game, to be honest, like, yeah, even if they win that Thunder game, I think it's still going to be a little bit tough for them to catch them, but we shall see. Let's start with Dallas, though. Yeah, The the Dallas issue is that they just can't defend anybody, just straight up. Like, they they just don't really have a chance on that end, it feels like, whenever you watch them. Well, and they, it seems like there's a lot of pointing of fingers as to who's responsible for that, that some of the coaching staff thinks that the players should be trying harder. Some of the, you know, media and people around the team think, and I'm not saying this is wrong, think that it's just a poorly constructed roster to be successful in the defensive end. I certainly fall into that camp. Uh, there's just, there's so, there are so many issues and not enough people who are solutions oriented or, uh, any type of solution that clearly pops out at you for how to fix any of this stuff that it just very much feels like a sinking ship that when a game is on the line and, and you know, I wrote about this for SB nation earlier in the week, if they come out and they end up winning a couple playing games and they make it to the postseason, are they going to be able to stop anybody over the course of a best of seven series? Like what yeah. adjustments, what styles can they play to take any of these top Western conference teams out of exactly what they want to run. So as much as you want to buy into the star power of Luca and Kyrie being a threat in the postseason, they look tired already from playing that role and having to compensate for a really porous defense. I think that's right. And I just don't see it with this group. I mean, you look at their last 15 games, they are currently 24th in defensive efficiency over those last 15, that's going to get worse. And that feels high. This disaster. Well, the thing is that if you look at the teams that are beneath them, it's a Pacers team that, you know, not quite like in full tank mode, but pretty close. A Rockets team that is in full tank mode. A Portland team that is in full tank mode. A Spurs team that is in full tank mode. And then Miami and Atlanta. So they essentially have like the third worst defense out of teams that, still give a shit yeah right so like they're bad they're really bad on defense there's no there's no ifs ands or buts about it they're really bad and look luca just looks tired out there i know we've talked about this on the podcast a week ago like there might be something else that's that's going on there i don't want to touch that necessarily but you would need herculean efforts from him and Kyrie to overcome what they have on that end and i just i don't see that happening right now and they, honestly, they might get them like to get to the play in tournament. Like it's not sure. impossible, but they're only a game out. And, I, you know, the team that they're playing is Oklahoma City and or they're competing against is Oklahoma City. And they're more talented than Oklahoma City because they have Luka and Kyrie. Like I love that Oklahoma City team with all of my heart. 
Uh, they are probably my favorite team to watch in the league, like them in Sacramento, probably. But at the end of the day, like they're young, like those dudes are young, and Dallas should be favored to make the playoffs against Oklahoma City right now at their stages of where they are in their build. Yeah, this would be a catastrophe for Dallas to not make the playoffs with this team. It very much feels like, and I can't remember off the top of my head because I'm not as good of an NBA historian, but I know there was a year when the Oklahoma City Thunder got like the nine seed. They won 45 or 46 games, but they missed the playoffs when they had peak Russ and KD and some of those guys. There, I think KD was banged up for a large portion of that year and missed some time where it's like, you know they're talented. You know you don't want to face them in the first round if they get there, but it just never felt like it was their year to see all of that come together. Yep. I think that's right. Uh, this this is just, it's going to require some t- real tinkering in the offseason. Assuming Kyrie stays, look, I I don't know where he's going to go, but they can give him the most money, let's just say. And it, it would make sense for him to stay if they want to keep him around. If he stays, it's just going to require some actual, go find some dudes who can defend. Yeah. Like, and they, they can do it. Yeah. Right. You have the two dudes. You just need to find defenders. Honestly, like defenders are tend to be the cheapest thing for you to be able to find. Like defenders don't really get overpaid. So we'll see. Maybe, yeah. or maybe Kyrie leaves and this whole thing like blows up. Who knows? Yeah. Like, look, I, I'm not too worried about the long term for Dallas. I think that there are ways that they can put the roster together. Now they have to do it this July. Like this is a huge time for them. But if they end up with a 10th pick in the draft this year, let's say, I don't think that's a complete disaster for the organization. So I'm, I'm just, I'm not hitting the long-term yeah. panic button. I just, I don't, I don't like what we're seeing right now. I, I disagree. I, I think that it is a total disaster for them if they end up with the 10th pick. Like this is not a team. Look, it'd be a great like consolation prize, I guess. But you have Luka fucking Doncic. He's like a first team all NBA player. You can't miss the playoffs with this guy. You just can't you can't miss the playoffs. You can't miss the 20 team play in with this guy. Let alone like the playoffs. Like yeah. there's just no, no It it also like, feels it feels like it's half step back to take two steps forward, right? Like once they traded for Kyrie, they know that's the long-term move that moves him forward. Maybe it just means for these 2 months we're not very good because that's the cost that we needed to pay in order to get this start. And I know it's a tough pill to swallow. It's not necessarily one I would want to, but I'm just, I'm not at the overt long-term panic mode. If they don't end up being one of the top 10 teams in the West this year, I'm not there. I don't think that they see it that way for what it's worth. Um, Yeah. Look, I think that Kyrie is like undeniably a long-term view, like a long-term move. But like you have Kyrie and Luca, like you're not. You should win. You're not missing the playoffs. You should like, win with that duo, typically. So, yeah, uh, let's go to the Thunder. So the Thunder are currently the ten seed, thirty-eight and forty. Very good team at home. A little bit of a rough team on the road. By the way, you can say that about basically all these teams outside of the Clippers. The Clippers have like a pretty real, like even split home versus road uh the warriors are obviously in the midst of this like very strange split uh the thunder are the thunder and pelicans are a little bit worse in terms of their splits home road uh the thunder they have 
two games at home, two games on the road, including this game tonight against Phoenix. Look, I love this team. I do think that they get the 10 seed. Maybe that's just me being optimistic and hoping that they continue to win. But the thing that stands out to me is just that they are incredibly competent. They, they are just so competent when you watch them. This is a young team filled with young dudes. You shouldn't, you shouldn't make as few mistakes as these guys make, yeah. I think is what it comes down to. And that's a credit to Mark Dagnall, who I think like might be one of like the very good coaches in the NBA. Like he he's might awesome. be really, really good. Yeah. yeah. Really, really good. He's, he's awesome. There's uh organizational synergy top to bottom here with the way that they draft players, the way that they develop them, the way that they play on the floor and mesh together. Uh, I'm not going to rehash any of that stuff. I know you had Andrew Schlecht on the podcast like a week or two ago. He did an unbelievable job explaining how they've built this roster and what they do. So go listen to Schlecht and the words that he he brought there. Uh, You mentioned youth with this Oklahoma City team. Everyone sees it. Everyone knows it about them around this time of year, people expect that to be the other shoe that drops, right? That a young team isn't the one that can make it in the playoffs, that when everyone else starts trying a little bit more and the stakes are higher, they'll tend to falter. To be honest, I don't think this team knows any better. They're just a bunch of tough, aggressive dudes that are going to go out there and play their hardest no matter who's in front of them. That's what they've built their identity on. That's what we've seen this entire year. I don't know if I buy into that changing just because – the stakes are higher and they might tighten up a little bit. I think this is a very loose group of guys who really enjoy being totally. around each other and playing with each other. I'd put my money on them being able to keep it that casual, even in a game that has monumental stakes. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you. I think that the Thunder draft guys like that, like guys that are confident, you know, uh, high level thinkers, like processors of basketball, and those guys tend not to get flustered, right? So I, I do agree with you on that front. But like we said, we talked about the thunder recently on the show. I don't know that I want to belabor the thunder uh, within this conversation. You know, they're sitting in a good spot here in 10th. And if they make the play in, it will be seen as a very good success. I also talked about the Lakers recently on the show with Schindler. I'll give you the floor, Adam. I I think this team is like very dangerous. Yes. uh, Like extremely. So Uh, they do have like a bit of a difficult schedule to finish like they do have LA and Phoenix in the middle here, but they have Houston in two games against Utah. If they can go four and one, they get to 43 and 39. I mean, that probably gets them the seven seed. I don't know if it quite gets them to the sixth though. What do you think? Yeah, I don't know if they can get to the six. They're, I mean, they're only a game back of the Clippers right now. And I'm not the, the tiebreaker maestro, right? Like, I don't have all of these what-if scenarios printed out in front of me and ready to, to give them out there. So I have no idea. But uh, look in the loss column right now, and they're tied. They're tied with the Clippers. And that's what I continue to go back to here. This is the most dangerous team in the West in this playoff race since the All-Star break. They have completely reshaped their defensive identity. Anthony Davis and Jared Vanderbilt are a nightmare for any team to try to face, particularly in that first round. I don't care if you're Denver. That's a that's a 
horrible matchup if you're the Nuggets trying to deal with what they can do and the different bodies they can throw at Jokic. If you're Memphis and the way that they can space you out a little bit on the offensive end of the floor with those two guys and the abundance of energy they bring, or if you're Sacramento and the the multitude of ways that they might be able to just pressure and disrupt Sabonis on the perimeter. The Lakers are built to win a first-round series against any of those teams that they would face if they end up in the sixth through eight spots. I agree. I, I actually like very strongly agree. I, I would not want to play this Lakers team. No. Uh, I think they're a very dangerous playoff team. Yeah. They're, I think they're going to make the playoffs. It's just whether or not they have to play in the play-in yeah. to get there, if I'm being real about but, it. Look, the, the play-in, you mentioned it earlier, that seven and eight spots are so valuable because if you win, you're not playing the top team in the West. And if you... Yeah. If you lose that first game, you still have another shot at it. So we want to talk so much about are you at the sixth spot and safe from it all, or are you somewhere in the seven through ten? Like, no, there's a huge gap between eight and nine, a huge gap between eight and nine. Yep. And I think the Lakers are sitting really pretty because they're a game up on Minnesota, who's in that nine seed, who's a little rickety right now. And the Lakers have been playing well, have an easier schedule with Houston and two against Utah. Uh, I think that the Lakers are at least safe to get two bites at the apple if they need to find a way to get themselves into a playoff series. The other thing about the play-in is that if you get the seven seed, you get the home game in the first play-in game. And that's really important as well. And it's important to note that against the Pelicans, who the Lakers are a game and a half or, or just a half game, not a game and a half, a half game behind because the Pelicans have a very difficult schedule coming up. They have Sacramento, Memphis, New York, Minnesota. Uh, all of those games are going to be hyper-competitive. All of those games are going to be tough. The good news for the Pelicans, they are playing really well right now. They have, uh, I believe, ripped off something like eight of nine recently, eight, seven of eight, something like that. Yeah. But you're you're going to give me the schedule. I get it. I am. I'm going to give you the schedule. Go ahead. Go yeah. ahead. I mean, look, those when they went on that five-game surge, they beat Houston, San Antonio, Charlotte, the tanking Blazers, and one good win over the Clippers. Like, I'm just – I'm not fully sold that they're on this magical late-season surge. I think that the calendar hit right for them then, and over the next week it's going to course correct. I get it. I do. Having said that, they've beaten the Clippers twice, and, like, they – did beat Denver. I mean, it, it was a Luka or a Nikola Jokic less Denver, but it was a Denver that played, you know, Jamal Murray, Contavious Caldwell Pope, Aaron Gordon, and Michael Porter. Like it wasn't like a dead Denver. It was just a less competitive Denver than what they typically can be. So, you know, I, I just think that I think they're playing better. And I think the big thing to bring up here with context of them playing better is that Brandon Ingram has just like completely surged and taken over this team. Like this is now, uh, you know, without Zion there, like this is his team now, like entirely. Uh, If you look at this little stretch, he missed back-to-back games against Oklahoma city and Portland uh, in earlier March. If you look since he's gotten back over his last 10, He's averaging 29 and a half points, six rebounds, eight assists. It does feel like they're putting him more on ball and letting him just make plays and make decisions over that time. He's also shooting 52% from the field, 43% from three, 91% from the line. So it's just like across the board, like he's absolutely killing. 
and he's really, really good. And we saw it last year in the play-in and in the first round of the, the NBA playoffs. This New Orleans team, even if they don't have Zion, like they're scrappy. They'll figure out ways to try to scheme you because Willie Green is a pretty good coach. They've got guys who can score in Ingram and, and C.J. McCollum. Like they're not going to be an easy out. I just wonder how much of their production is going to last. And, and look, we had conversations all summer and even into the fall this year, Sam, about what some of their guys, particularly Herb Jones, looks like in the postseason. The way that you can kind of scheme to take one or two guys out of it for New Orleans is really tough. I think that they've got to lean into being Brandon Ingram and a really defensive heavy type of lineup where they can switch a bunch of things and just try to disrupt people. Uh, Willie Green, infinitely smarter than I am, not trying to tell him how to do his job, but just from what I've seen a little bit more of, they they really need to have a a clear identity. If we're just going to go out there and make our opponent's life a living hell on the defensive end and hope that Brandon can make enough shots and create good offense for us to be able to win some, some games. The, The other piece of this is the Clippers and we should get to them because the Clippers right now are in a Paul George less spot, right? So Paul George is not playing right now. And, you know, it's Russell Westbrook, Eric Gordon, Kawhi, and, you know, Zubats and Nick Batum and Robert yeah. Covington and, you know, Mason Plumley and Bones Highlands playing 24 minutes in some games. And, you know, Norman Powell's obviously playing a lot of minutes, but it feels like when you take Paul George out of the equation, the roles of this chain, this team have so drastically shifted to where I think it becomes very, very difficult for them, especially defensively, it feels like to me, to be able to hold up across the board. Yeah, I'm, I'm not too bullish on the Clippers if they don't have Paul George. And that's with all due respect to the recent play of Russell Westbrook, who's been very good for them. That's with all due respect to Kawhi Leonard, who we've seen take over postseason series before. And with all due respect to Ty Lue, who I think is one of the more imaginative coaches in a best of seven series when he's got a star or two and a bunch of different pieces that he can tinker with and try to figure out how to best utilize. Uh, I think that they have been a group that's built for postseason success but there's one thing that can take him out of it. And that's an absence of one of their two stars. And if we're staring down the barrel of the gun and we see one of those two guys, that's not in there. It's going to be hard to put the Clippers as one of the favorites in this playing group to make some noise in first round series. Yeah. 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 Uh, I think that more than anything, I'm just wondering if they're going to make the playoff or the play in like yeah. they are, you know, just a half game ahead of the Pelicans. The Pelicans are playing better than they are. They just beat them twice. They're only a game ahead of the Lakers. Obviously, they do have that big game against the Lakers. Uh, what is that? That is going to be April 5th, so this coming Wednesday. I mean, look, they're, they're probably going to beat Houston. We just would have said that about Portland against Minnesota, but like, yeah, they probably will beat Houston, you would hope. And then they have this, uh, or no, the Lakers play Houston. Who do, who do the Clippers play? The Clippers have, uh, the Clippers only have three games left. They play the Lakers on Wednesday. I know that. And then they play Portland and Phoenix. So honestly, they probably go one and two in that stretch, right? They probably go one and two. Right. They're sitting there at 42 and, you know, 40. Is 42 and 40 going to be enough to get you there? 
Well, so they're two games up on the Timberwolves right now. Two games up on them in the loss column with only three to play. And the Timberwolves are in that nine spot. So as long well, no, as... Uh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I mean, as long as they can take care of business against Portland and win one more game, then that keeps them out of being in the 9-10 game, right? Yes, that is accurate. So that if, that will that will be accurate for sure. Yeah. So if that's the case, if all they need to do is win one more to avoid that 9-10 game, then I mean, things are starting to settle a little bit better for the Clippers. They've got two bites at the apple, like we said, in order to to get themselves into a playoff series. I'm not as worried about whether they can win one of those two games. I'm much more worried about can they do any type of damage or be a threat to the top teams in the West in the best of seven series. I just I don't see it with them in comparison to maybe some of the other teams we're talking about here. I kind of am a little bit worried about them potentially winning in the play-in. Really? Like if they don't have Paul, it depends on if Paul George is healthy. Well, of course, if Paul George is healthy. Like, <laughs> they're, I think, they're yeah, they're a favorite in that play-in scenario. I, I, I think, right. in, in, in assuming without him, like they can still win one of two games. They've been treading water and doing okay while Paul George is out. I just don't see that having a lot of of weight in a best of seven series against the heavyweights like Denver, Memphis, or Sacramento right now. Just don't see it. Yeah. No, I don't either. But. Uh, you know, Sacramento is going to be weird because how does their defense hold up in the playoffs sure. is like a real substantial question, I think, yeah. especially against like a team like the Clippers with Paul George potentially that could like really cause them some issues on the wings. Um, the Clippers are in an interesting spot just because I don't, again, like does 42 wins get you there when you probably have to play, you do have to play the Lakers. We know that. Pelicans, if they can win two, they're in that spot. They have to go two and two during that stretch. I think that this all comes down to that Lakers game on Wednesday. I really do. Like, for them to just straight make the top six. I think this comes down to that Lakers game. A must-win game where uh, we're still almost a week away from how the standings will shake out. And Very interesting, Vecini. I think it kind of is a must win game for both of them. Like that is, it's not a must win, but like it is a very important game where I think both of those teams will play exceptionally hard throughout that game. And it's going to be a really, really good one. I think to watch. Uh, Okay. Let's finish with the warriors very briefly because they're, they're only a game ahead of the Pelicans, but they're a half game ahead of the Clippers. They are playing way better than the Clippers. They have won five of their last six games here. They do play Denver tonight. It will be interesting to see what that Denver team looks like. And then you have Oklahoma City, Sacramento, Portland. If you can win at home against Oklahoma City, and then you can exercise your road demons against Portland uh, on the road on the last day of the year, you should be fine to get in to just the playoffs and the top six at that point, because then you'd be at 43 wins. We think the Clippers are probably only going to get to 42, let's say, unless they beat the Lakers. You should be okay in that circumstance. Can I ask you the most annoying, like blog boy, internet dweeb question that I don't know if teams think of it this way, but it's just something that keeps coming to my mind. Okay, let's do it. 
the Phoenix Suns are probably going to be hosting a series as the four seed. Yep. And the Sacramento Kings hosting a series as the three. Yep. The two teams that end up at five and six have a huge advantage and need to stay there because they avoid the play-in. So the six is the security blanket. But is the yep. six seed a better one to have than the five? Yes. The six is better to have than the five. But I feel like you can't really try to plan to get the six right. until you clinch being in the top six. And Which beyond that, hard for the Warriors. We could find ourselves in a spot where there's so many potential outcomes over the final two, maybe even three games of the season that everyone's got to go out there and just try to win. Yep. And I don't want to bring this all back to Sacramento because I love the vibes in Sacktown right now. I'm stoked that they are back in the postseason and they're actually going to going to host a first round series. But man, if I'm not Golden State right now and I'm looking at the way Phoenix is playing, or at least that's the star power that they have, I would be praying for the Kings. I just would. And that's, that is not disrespect to Sacramento, but I think Phoenix is just a whole different animal with the way that their, their roster is built with CP three, Kevin Durant and Devin Booker. I think it is too. I would rather play the Kings than the Suns. All due respect to my beloved Kings team. Yep. I would rather play the Kings than the Suns just because I think that the way that the matchups present themselves are much more difficult when you play Phoenix versus that Sacramento defense where you should be able to score. It is hard to plan for the Sacramento offense, though. I will well, say it, that. Here's another thing, Sam. I absolutely do not think Golden State can beat Phoenix without Andrew Wiggins. I don't think they can do it. They would need him to match up with Kevin Durant. I think you're right. Like, I think you are right about that. Man, am I – I have no idea what's going on with the, the Wiggins situation. Yeah, when he and we're not going to speculate on we that are, for what it's are, worth. We are not going to. But it, you need him to beat Phoenix. You need him. Yeah. They need him to beat Phoenix. I agree with you. Uh, okay. What order does this finish in, Adam? <laughs> all right. Let's go all over the board here. So I'm locking Phoenix into the four. Uh, I think that that's, yep. that's where they will stay. I am going to keep Golden State at the five because I like the schedule that they have and the way that they're playing right now. I'm going to put the Lakers at six, the Clippers at seven, Pelicans eight, Thunder nine, Timberwolves ten. I'm going to go Suns, Warriors, Lakers, Pelicans, Clippers, Timberwolves, Thunder. Okay. So we just have different teams hosting the 7, 8, and 9, 10 games, yeah. but the same teams that are playing there. Yeah. Same teams. Yeah. The West is fun, man. The West is a wild ride. Just a just a wild, weird like group of teams that yeah. – you know, so flawed. All of them are so flawed, but it's so fun. Like well, a great and, group. And look, I mean, we're talking about the Warriors without Wiggins, and they've been banged up for a lot of the year. The Clippers potentially without Paul George. The Pelicans without Zion Williamson. Timberwolves just trying to get Carl Anthony Towns back. Like there are a lot of ask not not asterisks, but like what ifs that could go on with the Western Conference. But you can make the case for any of these teams that they could vault themselves easily into being in the top three. But the season sure. just hasn't shaken out that way. And what we get as a result is probably a really hectic final week of the regular season and then a lot of talented teams that are going to be in that play-in game 
and then in the first round of the tournament against the big bad teams in the West. It's going to be great. It's going to be a great time. Adam, tell the people where they can find your work. Yeah, find me on Twitter at the Boxing One underscore my Substack, theboxin1.substack.com, or on YouTube with my name, Adam Spinella. It's NBA Draft Scouting Report season for me. Just a million of those things flying off the shelves right now. Make sure you're tuning in. Twitter shares all of that stuff, the videos, the the written scouting reports, but really excited to be diving into to that college film now that most prospects and after tomorrow, all prospects have really wrapped up their seasons. Yeah, and for me at The Athletic now, I've got a few different features I'm working on coming out relatively soon. I have got transfer portal rankings, which just absolutely engulf my life this time of year. Um, I I will literally be watching tape on transfers until 11 p.m. now, probably. Um, And then, yeah, when... Guys declare for the draft. I end up doing a few words on the athletic. I'll share that as that happens. But yeah, other than that, keep it locked at the athletic. You're going to get so much good stuff and just go subscribe for all of the great final four coverage of my colleagues down there that uh, assuredly will be very good. Uh, yeah, I think that's all I've got. Go subscribe to the show on YouTube, Game Theory Podcast with Sam Fasini. Go uh, subscribe on Apple, Spotify whatever podcasting platform you use. We will be back later this week with a bit more of a deep dive on the CBA changes that will be forthcoming, the negotiations that just occurred. I'm waiting to do a show on that until we have a little bit more clarity on all of these things, because it feels like we're dealing with incomplete information. It felt like when, you know, all of the original stuff came out that it was geared toward the owners. Some of the stuff that's trickling out now is geared toward the players. I just want to wait. I want to be a little bit patient. I want to do a deep dive into it with someone that's smart at the end of it. But we will be ready to do that whenever that information comes. We will have three shows this week. Until next time, we'll talk soon. Bye.